Well, it's great to see everybody here this morning at Redeemer City Church. Uh, thank you for, so much for joining us today. It is, a, uh, it is a joy to get to see you, to be able to worship with you, uh, and it is a privilege and a pleasure to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Like Eli said, my name is Aaron, I'm a pastor over here, if you don't know me, and uh, so I'm excited to, uh, to bring this word to you this morning. So we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. <clears throat> so if you have a Bible, you can uh, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2 if you want to follow along with me there. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay because we will have the text up on the screens next to me. So you can follow along uh, there as well. Um, so I'll give you just a moment to turn there. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 and starting in verse 11. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I know a lot of us might have Ephesians 2, 8, or uh, 8 through 10, 8, 9, 8, 9, 10 memorized, but there is a lot of good stuff that comes after verse 10 as well in the rest of Hebrews. I'm sorry, not Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 2. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning uh, as we consider God's word. So Ephesians chapter 2 and starting in verse 11, I'll give you just one more moment for the people who are uh, going to be following along in their Bibles. And then we'll get started. Okay. It seems like we're all there. The pages turning have quieted down, and uh, those of you with your digital Bibles have been patiently waiting. And so we'll get started. So like I said, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and starting in verse 11. This is Paul writing. He says, So then... Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made no effect of the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. In this series, we're asking ourselves, what would it look like for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we pray in the Lord's prayer? And so we have been talking about uh, what God's kingdom means, and we have been talking about, especially whenever God's kingdom and his will is done on earth and uh, and his kingdom and, and, and will brings about justice on this earth, well, then what does that mean that we might see justice on this earth, God's justice being 
um, being brought about in our world. And so we've been doing that, building these definitions and these understandings, and uh, we are now in this series moving on to be a little bit more specific and a little bit more focused on applications. So looking at some of the areas of our world, some of the areas of our society and culture where we need to see God's kingdom come, where we need to see his will being done, places where uh, maybe where there is a lot of division, places where there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding and uh, a lot of conflict over, and uh, maybe even some division and conflict over these issues within the church. And so asking, okay, well then, if we want to see God's will being done, you know, here and there and wherever else we're talking about, what would that look like? And so we talked last week about uh, the responsibility of raising our children in Christ, right? And so the foundation for a just society begins in the home. I said that for several weeks leading up to it, and we're going to keep uh, reinforcing that, that a society of justice begins in the home and in the way that we raise our children. And so this week, we're moving on to what is probably the, one of the conversations that is at the most of the forefront in our society, at least for the past four to six years, it has been one of the primary topics in our broader culture, but also in the church, and that is the topic of racism and racial reconciliation. There's a lot of debate over this, and, and, you know, and how do we approach it, and what exactly are the problems, and, and based off what are the problems are, what are the solutions, and so you see the world arguing about this, but you also, you also see the church arguing about it. Even within the church, and, and not even within, you know, the broad-speaking church, because, you know, in the broad body of Christ, you got a lot of different people and a lot of different perspectives and personalities, and so, so it's expected that, like, that they'll, there'll be, you know, we're not all going to see perfectly eye-to-eye all the time, but we're still brothers and sisters, and that's okay. But even on a more local level, I mean, I've seen how even within, within local churches, there's a lot of misunderstanding and division over this issue. And so today we are approaching this question, like I said, which is one of those uh, harder ones. And so uh, just let me say before I, I maybe this is the preamble to the, the preface to the introduction, uh, that I'm not going to be able to touch on every single nuance of this today, okay? We've got a few more weeks left in this series, so, so in time, maybe I'll be able to touch on more nuances and questions. I'm not going to be able to say everything all at once, okay? So if you have any questions after this, please come and talk to me about it. If there's something I didn't touch on, uh, but you want to know my opinion, let's talk about it for sure. Um, but I might not be able to hit on every single nuance and subtopic and question of this today. But here is the question that I want us to ask. The most important question, whenever it comes to really any topic, but especially this one, and I think the reason why we uh, are having such a hard time, even as Christians, seeing each other, or seeing and understanding and coming to a place of common ground, at least a, you know, a general, broad place of common ground, allowing for some disagreements at the fringes of the issue, right, is because we're not asking this question. What does God say about us? This is the most important question. It is where we must begin on this topic, just like any other, and I think it is one that we've been overlooking. The question of what does God say about us? And I say this in contrast to what does God say about us? Not what does Robin D'Angelo say about us. Not what does Ben Shapiro say about us. Not what does Abram X. Kendi say about us. Not what does Jordan Peterson say about us. Not what does Ta-Nehisi Coates say about us. Not what does Dennis Prager say about us. Regardless of which side of the aisle you come from in this morning, I'm saying we need to quit asking, what do all these people say? And instead ask, what does God say 
about us and then evaluate man's word through the filter of God's word for us. You see, because over the past year, as I've been digging into this more and thinking about it and really spending months in preparation for this series to come to this topic, what I heard so many times over and over again, whether it was personally to my face or whether it was over social media, is that, you know, something along the lines of like, you know, I didn't really understand God's heart for justice. I didn't really understand God's heart for racial reconciliation until I read this book. You know, and, and Aaron, a pastor, you're not really going to understand it either unless you read this book. You, you read this resource. Now, I'm not talking about something that is an exposition of Scripture, okay? I'm all for reading books that are an exposition of Scripture. But I'm talking about what was always being presented to me was a sociology book. Something written by someone who was not a Christian, not coming from a Christian worldview, and, but being told that if I really want to understand what God thinks, then I need to understand what they say, whoever else they might be. And so we must decide for ourselves, is God's word sufficient for us? Not just on this issue, but like I said, of every issue of life, but then coming back, especially on this issue, is God's word sufficient for us? Because if we tell ourselves that we will not understand the issue of racial reconciliation until we have scripture plus like I said, D'Angelo or Shapiro, whoever else, then we've got a problem. Is God's word sufficient? Will we judge the problems and prescribe the solutions for our culture by sociology or by scripture? Let us commit together this morning that we would do it by scripture, that we would be a people committed to what Paul said in uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, that all scripture is profitable for life, for all of life. And so this morning, we're going to look at what Paul has to say about this issue in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at this dividing wall that Paul talks about. There's this dividing wall. We're going to look at how the wall is torn down, according to Paul. And then lastly, how there is this one new house that is built in, this, in its place. So the, the dividing wall, tearing down the wall, and then the new house that is built in its place. So we begin with the dividing wall that Paul talks about here. A good doctor is someone who you can trust to get the right diagnosis, right? You don't want to go to the doctor for, uh, you know, for a sick stomach, and he gives you something for you know, a, a sinus infection, <laughs> or vice versa. You want, whenever you go to the doctor, you want to make sure that if you're going to get the right remedy, if you're going to get the right solution, the right medicine, that he or she is going to diagnose the uh, problem right. Right? A good doctor gets the right diagnosis, so it leads to the right remedy. And so similarly, whenever we look at the problems of our culture, and whenever we look at the problem of the uh, racial divisions right, and, and the racial strife that we see um, and conflict that we see in our world today, we need to make sure that we get the problem right. Like, what, what is the issue? What is going on here? And I'm not just talking about, okay, well, the issue is that there's division or strife. right? I'm talking about, well, what's beneath that? What is causing that? Right, because that's where the heart of the conflict is. So we need to make sure that we diagnose the problem right so that we go to the right solution. And so what does Paul say is the, uh, is the core of the problem? What is humanity's fundamental problem that needs to be addressed? Here's what Paul says. Alienation from God. The first point is this. Humanity's fundamental problem is alienation from God. This is what Paul is saying in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. 
He's saying that, uh, now he's speaking to a primarily Gentile audience, but there were Jews in there too, um, because you, you can tell subtly he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. He is addressing this audience, and uh, he is, what he is trying to get to is how there was once divisions between Jew and Gentile, how there were these divisions culturally and, and ethnically and relig- religiously and so on, but how Christ brings them together. So whenever he talks about uh, the core of the issue and what was behind the divisions between Jew and Gentile, what was driving the separation between them, Paul gets down to this. He says, alienation from God. He really gets to it in verse 12. He says, here is the fundamental problem with humanity, without Christ, without God. This is humanity, and this is, this is human society. This is human culture unless it is founded upon Scripture. This is the fundamental problem that uh, we see in our world today, is alienation from God. Paul describes it vividly. He describes alienation from God as being without Christ. Christ, our Savior, so being without Christ means uh, being bound to other saviors or attempting to be our own saviors, being without Christ. He also says that it is being excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Now, he's not just talking about an ethnostate. He is speaking spiritually here of, um, of, uh, of the uh, people that God uh, has redeemed for himself and now live in obedience to him, right? What one, once was a state, right, a nation in the Old Testament, as it, you go into the New Testament, it is uh, kind of transformed to this idea with Paul where, you know, there was the state of Israel, but true Israel is all those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying here. So he's saying without Christ, without a Savior, he's saying um, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. So that would mean being a, being a rebel, right, being a non-citizen, being... Um, being on the outside of that citizenship. He goes on even more from that. He says being foreigners to the covenants of promise. That means God's covenants of promise that he made to, to Abraham and to Moses and to David, these promises where uh, they would be his people, he would be their God, and that in this relationship there would be grace and there would be love and there would be blessing. He was saying that whenever we are alienated from God, we are outside of that covenant, which means Outside of the covenant of promise means outside of the covenant of love, outside of the covenant of life, which means to be underneath death. And then he brings it all together saying that without hope and without God in the world. Whenever we look at any problem in our society, we cannot approach it and diagnose it first politically and say, well, it's these policy reasons why. This is the case. We cannot approach it first and diagnose it sociologically and say, well, it is these cultural reasons or these, uh, these historical factors that make this situation the mess that it is. Fundamentally, at bottom, now I'm not discounting what, we can, what insights we can gain, okay? And I'm going to talk about that more later. I'm not discounting what helpful insights we can gain, but I'm saying fundamentally, at bottom, and what, where we need to start and then move out from is being without God. You see, what is the reason? We might say, any place that we see injustice, the problem with that is that there is one person or there's one group or there's somebody in power who is oppressing those who do not have power, right? They are abusing them or they are taking advantage of them or manipulating them or whatever else, whether that's on a broad, like national level, all the way down to a local level, even, even in families, right? right? What, what's the problem? The problem is that someone is oppressing someone else. 
right? But like I said, we must go deeper than that because Scripture goes deeper than that. Scripture goes deeper than just uh, the, the problems that we normally look at down to the heart of the issue. And so whenever we look anywhere in our world and we see injustices happening or we see oppression happening, the problem is that there's somebody oppressing someone else, yes, but they are oppressing someone else or they are manipulating or abusing power because they are without God, godless, Christless, outside of the covenant, right? This is what I mean by saying we must get down beneath the apparent issues or the superficial things that we can see with our eyes to what scripture tells us, here's where the conflict really is. Here's where the cancer really is. Here's where the poison is residing that needs to be dealt with so that then the solutions can work out from there and flourish in the way that God prescribes. Humanity's fundamental problem is alienation from God. And it was alienation from God that drew a division between Jew and Gentile. You see, there was fierce division between Jew and Gentile uh, in this time in the, in, in, in the world um, and in the situation that Paul was speaking to. Um, because you had these two groups that did not understand one another at all. And you had these two groups that especially um, the, the Gentile group was opposing and oppressing the Jewish group very often. The best example being that the Gentile Romans had taken occupation over Israel and were oppressing them through, uh, through force and violence, oppressing them through, uh, through outrageous taxation, uh, taking away their liberty, and so on. And so um, not just on a state level, but also even down to a cultural level, there were great divisions between Jew and Gentile during this time. You can see how this was something that the early church had to battle with whenever you read the New Testament. Because you read the book of Acts, and you see how Peter had to have a vision from God come to him before he, would, he could start to see and have his heart changed that the Gentiles could actually be a part of the people of God. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. And then it took a while for that lesson to sink into him because whenever you read Galatians chapter 2, you see that Paul had to address Peter because Peter was beginning to break fellowship with the Gentiles. Why? Because they were not Jews. And so he was beginning to break fellowship with them because he could not see them as being fully equal with himself as recipients of grace, uh, recipients of the covenant of promise, being with God because they weren't Jewish. They weren't ethnically Jewish. They weren't religiously Jewish. They weren't following the traditions and the rules and the ceremonies that Paul talks about here. And so the idea was is that if you Gentiles want to be fully members of the household of God, like us Jews, well, then you have to become Jews. But Paul is writing to this situation that was complex, where there were all kinds of divisions, where there were uh, sins and hurts going both ways. He writes into the situation, and he says... The fundamental problem is that you were without God. And he speaks to both Gentile and Jew. It's most obvious in in 11 and 12, right, that he is speaking to the Gentiles, where he's saying you were without God, you were outside of the covenant. But later on, when he talks about how Christ and the the work of Christ was preached, he says this. He says, um, let me just read it. Where does he say? In verse 17, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. Who is he talking to? He's saying Christ came, and the good news of Christ is proclaimed to you who are far, speaking of the Gentiles, and to you who are near. He's addressing the Jews as well. 
He's saying regardless of who you were before Christ, you were alienated from God and you needed Christ. Once again, this is the fundamental problem. And then all the other issues of cultural or ethnic superiority are worked out from there. Right? Where there is sin and need for repentance, it is called to from that basis. Where there are uh, systems that need to be changed, they are then changed from that basis. Right? But we must begin from the right place. What they were doing was, is that they were taking superficial, arbitrary distinctions between one another and making them essential. Right? They were taking what was superficial, right? the ethnic differences between Jew and Gentile. They're drawing these arbitrary lines between themselves, making them uh, acting as though they were the true lines of division between humanity. And Paul is trying to address them and say, no, the true line that divides humanity is between those inside the covenant and those outside the covenant, right? Those with God and those without God. And at one time, you were all on one side of the line. It's important for us to see this, to see what they were doing, because it informs what we do as well. I think what they were doing informs something that, that we might point to as one of the problems in our society today. And, and, that, and why, even though the issue and the question of racial reconciliation has been at the forefront of our cultural conversation as a nation, as a church, for years now, and we seem to be making not just no progress, but regressing as time goes on, is because we are not starting with what Paul talks about here. We're starting with those superficial issues. We're starting with those, especially with those arbitrary differences. And any time that we begin with, uh, with definitions and problems and solutions that are outside of Scripture is going to lead to a bad place. You see, the whole reason that we can look at our history of America, of the West, and see the, um, and see the horror of the institution of uh, chattel slavery which was based upon ethnicity, the whole reason that that system came into place is because people centuries ago started to look at the world and divide humanity among artificial and arbitrary lines. They created this artificial idea called race. Did you know that there is no such thing in the Bible? According to scripture, there is one race, those in Adam right? And that's all of us. Even, even scientifically, there's no such thing as different races. The only thing that divides us is the degree of melanin that you have in your skin. We all have the same thing. We all have melanin, right? But it is the degree that you have it, right? It's just different. We're all just different shades of the same color. But what people did centuries ago in order to justify their wicked hearts and their their evil intentions was they created this idea of race, which was helpfully informed by Darwinian uh, evolution, and that people had evolved from different uh, uh, through different mechanisms, and they were and that they were along different places of progress in the evolutionary chain, and so therefore, because some races of people were more superior than other races of people, that it was okay for the superior races to do what they desired with the, with the so-called inferior. 
what they were doing was they were drawing artificial lines that is not there in nature, nor is it there in scripture. They were drawing arbitrary lines among differences which are not real, which are not essential differences, but are literally just skin deep and committing all kinds of horrors upon it. And I think the reason that we are having so much trouble today in this conversation is because we're still working on those assumptions. Maybe not quite as overt, but I think that we are still working on those assumptions and that we are still drawing lines along these arbitrary things, along these very superficial things. Let me give you one of the best examples. In um, and so, you know, the, the greatest, one, of the, one of the greatest, uh, well, let me put it this way, the, what is considered the common sense wisdom in our world today to address this issue is, is modern anti-racism. The kind of philosophies and, and solutions being proposed by D'Angelo, Kendi, and, and so on. And whenever we apply these uh, these solutions and these worldviews from modern anti-racism training and so on, what they teach and what they do is, is a re-emphasizing of whiteness and a re-emphasizing of blackness or brownness or whatever else and dividing the world between whiteness and blackness and saying that the fundamental problem of the world is whiteness and, and whatever else, that this is sin. And so you see this being played out in books and articles and so on, but there's a really famous example of it this past week whenever uh, someone had published on the internet this, uh, this anti-racism training that they did at Coca-Cola. Did anybody else see what they did at Coca-Cola? So they had this training at Coca-Cola, but it was only for their white employees to try to talk to them about racial reconciliation, anti-racism, and so on. And in this training, they defined whiteness as all of these uh, things that we would call sin, right? That whiteness is the feeling of superiority, that whiteness is the feeling of being morally right. Uh, Whiteness is objectivity or a belief in objectivity and all these different things. And then the point of the training was to teach these people, um, once again, their white employees, that they need to be less white. They've got to work on being less white because in this worldview, white is a sin. And I love what Pastor Kirk from, um, Pastor Kirk Alexander from Christ Church, if any of you guys know him. He, he's an African-American pastor over there, phenomenal man of God. And I love what he said on Facebook this week whenever he posted, if Coca-Cola would have brought their black employees together and told them that they need to try to be less black, we would have seen the obvious racism in this, the obvious problem. He said, if you start with the wrong problems, you're going to end with the wrong solutions. And that's absolutely right. You see, what we are seeing today and what is being promoted as solutions and what is being promoted as wisdom is a re-emphasizing of these superficial differences, which were the same things being emphasized years ago to promulgate and to excuse all kinds of horrors being done by one ethnic group against another. Whereas when we look at scripture, it does not work among, it does not work according to our world's common sense wisdom. It does not make much out of uh, skin color. It does not make much out of race, but it says that at one time we were all alienated from God. And whenever some people are alienated from God, and because they are idolaters, because they are outside of the covenant, because they have hearts that are not regenerated, they sometimes use their power in order to abuse 
and to hurt and to do wicked things to others. The fundamental problem, and like I said, I'm not saying that we don't address all the other problems, but the fundamental one that we must start with is alienation from God. So the application is that if, there's sep- if separation between people is the result of alienation from God, then we must start from this foundation in our pursuit of racial reconciliation and justice. And so after Paul diagnoses the problem, he then moves on, and he tells us how there was once this dividing wall, right? There was once the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and we can look at our world today, and we can see how there are dividing walls all over the place. There's dividing walls between, um, between class groups. There's dividing walls between political groups. There is, unfortunately, even still dividing walls among uh, ethnic groups. There's always dividing walls, much like what Paul talked about here, and he tells us how these walls are torn down. And here's what we learned. This is my second major point. That biblical racial reconciliation is the work of embracing what has already been obtained in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Biblical racial reconciliation is the work of embracing what has already been obtained by Jesus Christ. You see, in order for us to understand the magnitude of the reconciliation, we must understand the magnitude of the alienation. Paul tells us here that, first of all, that there was this alienation between us and God, as I've already talked about much, right? Outside of the covenant, outside of the citizenship of Israel, without Christ, without hope, and so on. There was this great alienation between God and man. But then what Paul says is that God in Jesus Christ, through the work of the cross, through Jesus becoming sin, becoming the uh, taking on the punishment that we deserved, and then giving us his righteousness and giving us the gift of the blessing that he deserved, what he has done is he bridged the divide that was once between God and man, and he has brought reconciliation where there was once alienation between God and man. If you want to understand, and if we have any hope of building reconciliation and, and building bridges and so on, not just in our world, but look, even, even in our local body, then it starts there with the gospel the magnitude of the reconciliation that God achieved whenever he brought us sinners, whenever he brought us rebels, whenever he brought us covenant breakers into covenant with himself. And the, uh, the work that he had to achieve in the cross of Christ in order to effectuate that and make it happen, if you understand the magnitude of how we were alienated from him, then you can see the glory and the magnitude of how he has reconciled us to himself. But here's the thing. That is not something that, it starts individual, but it does not stay individual. It starts with you as a person, as an individual before God, who was once a sinner before God, being reconciled to him as his child. But then here's what Paul goes on to, uh, to explain to the Ephesians and, and to us, which is that whenever God reconciles us to himself, he then breaks down the walls of hostility that once stood between people and people groups and then reconciles us to one another. This is what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, that because God has reconciled us to himself, he brings reconciliation between us, bringing us together. Where there was once these uh, walls dividing us, he says that Jesus Christ tears down these walls. In verse 14, for he is our peace. Once again, for where there is no peace and where, for where there is conflict in any culture, the answer, where can there be peace? In Christ. 
Four times in this passage, he talks about Christ being our peace. He says, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. If we have any hope of tearing down the walls today, if we have any hope of seeing peace where there is conflict, then it will happen in Christ. It will not happen by our solutions. And it is not left up to us to effectuate it. It is not left up to us to make it happen. It is not something that we need to achieve. It is something that Christ has done. And something which we must therefore repent from our solutions. Repent from our power. Repent from our wisdom. And embrace the wisdom of Christ. Embrace the work of Christ. Embrace the gift of reconciliation that he has given us. You see, there is only one thing that can change the heart of the racist. There is only one thing that can change the heart of a slave trader like John Newton. That can change the heart of the white supremacist. That can change the heart of the the corrupt, power-hungry, bloodthirsty politician. we got plenty of those. And it is Christ calling that man or calling that woman to repent of their superiority, their rebellion, their idolatry. Repent and receive the gift of grace that he has given them. And then in obedience and submission to him as their Savior and Lord, embrace the reconciliation that he has accomplished. This is what Paul is talking about where he says that Jesus is our peace. So, friends, we must see that the power for reconciliation is in the blood of Christ. Nothing else can tear down the walls. Nothing else can bring true peace as we desire it than the blood of Christ. Whenever Paul talks about these walls, these dividing walls of hostility and the walls being torn down, what he's doing is he is actually referencing something uh, quite literal. What he is referencing is he's using analogies with, with, these, with this wording here and this phrasing. He's using an analogy trying to draw people's attention, their mind, to the old temple system within Judaism. In the old temple system, you had right, the temple. So it's like church, going to church, right? Um, but in the temple system, you had the center where it was seen as like that's where God's presence was. And that was in the Holy of Holies. That was the center where God's presence was. If you, as one of God's people, wanted to enter into his presence, to commune with God, to have a relationship with God, his presence is there, so you've got to get to it. But they had all these dividing walls of separation. And, and on the one hand, it was, an, it was an object lesson for the Old Testament people to learn about God's holiness, right, and our separation from him. But when, what you had was this, all these dividing walls. So there was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could enter. And there were separate chambers outside of it where only the priests and the Levites could enter. And then there were the courts outside of that. And so in the innermost court, only the heads of Jewish households, so only Jewish men were allowed there. And then you had all these courts going out from it. And so in the temple, you had this one broad court where those Gentiles who had left behind their old religion or whatever else and became a follower of God, they were allowed to go into the temple, but they were only allowed to go so far. There were literally dividing walls when it came to temple worship between the Gentiles and where they were and then the Jews in their court. And you had the 
court of the Jewish women and the Jewish men, and so on. And these walls became just another symbol, another visible reminder of the division between them, the, the dividing walls of hostility. But whenever Christ came, he replaced the temple. Jesus is our new temple, so where now we do not have to enter into the presence of God through the priestly system of rituals and sacrifices and passing through the various courts to try to get as close to God's presence as we can, but God's presence is brought to us in the new temple that we all have access to, which is in Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus Christ is our new temple, if he replaced that old temple, if he replaced that old system, and it, it means that he literally tore down the walls that once separated the nations from being able to enter into God's presence together as one people. So what Paul's saying here in this analogy is also something which is quite literal, which is that the dividing walls are torn down in Christ. He is our peace. And with all the walls that we have today, they may not be literal temple walls, but the walls along where you came from, or what neighborhood you grew up in, or what school you went to, or what political side of the aisle you're on, or whatever ethnicity you belong to, or whatever culture you come from. Whatever dividing walls there are there, where our society tries to, to build them up, and Christ tears all those down as well. So you see, it's not up to us to tear them down. Praise God that the work of racial reconciliation and the work of bringing peace between uh, not just racial, but any division between people groups that the work is not left to, up to us to accomplish, but just like our salvation is accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And so once again, what this means for us is that racial reconciliation is not so much something that we need to achieve as it is embrace in obedience to Christ. And so whenever you hear people telling you, according to the wisdom of our world today, that here are the things that you need to do, right? Here, here are the resources that you need to read or the causes that you need to join on to or the, the systems that need to be dismantled or the, the, the identities and movements that need to be divested from. Do not hear me wrong. Where there is injustice, it must be addressed, Okay? But ultimately, anytime we, we work to change systems, anytime we, we work to build bridges, what we are doing is we're doing the work of embracing what Christ has achieved. What we're doing is trying to apply to the world, proclaim to the world, to submit to Jesus Christ, enacting God's kingdom in our society. And so what this all leads to at the end of this passage here in Ephesians chapter 2 is this is this beautiful, amazing thing that Paul tells us. Where there was once people divided, where there are once different houses of man, you can say, where there are once these different groups, and Paul says, where, where you were once alienated and where there were once different groups, you have been brought together into one new man in Christ. Right, so, so where we were once all divided, we are now a part of one body, the body of Christ, right? And he says, and where there are once different kingdoms or different houses, he says, you are now brought together into one house that is being built up, once again, not by us. Thank God we get the privilege of participating, but that house is being built up by God. What he says is this. He says that the gospel 
takes people who were once divided and turns them into a temple. Because he says that we are being built up into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built up together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You see, more than just the temple being a place where God's people could come to worship, the temple was like a shining light to the world. The temple, whenever you read about the building of the temple of Solomon in the Old Testament, it was an incredibly beautiful structure made with the the finest uh, materials, made with the finest woods and metals and so on. It was this uh, uh, amazingly beautiful temple. So much so that whenever the, the exiles came back and they rebuilt the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah, if you go and you read about uh, how they rebuilt the temple, it talks about how the younger generations who hadn't seen the first one were celebrating, but the older generations who had seen Solomon's temple were weeping because it could not compare to the beauty of that first one. The temple was not meant just to be a place where the people came and worshiped God, but something that was a projection or a display of God's glory, of God's beauty uh, to the world around, wherever they saw the beauty and the glory of the temple. But Jesus Christ has replaced that temple, as I said before. He is now our access to God. And what is it now if the temple has been replaced and if Christ is not physically here in the flesh anymore to be that display of glory, of God's glory to the world, what replaces that function of the temple to be a a shining light of beauty and a a, a visible piece of God's glory so that the nations might turn and worship him? Paul says it is these divided groups being brought together. It is these people who are once separated from one another. It is these people who once had divisions between one another. It is these people who once sinned against another group. It is these people where maybe there there was not even, maybe there wasn't hostility, but there was just even apathy between one another. Paul says, the gospel comes in and he changes heart, and the gospel changes hearts. And the gospel reconciles us to God, reconciles us to one another. It tears down all walls. It builds bridges. It brings us together. And then it builds us up into this new temple as a dwelling place for God's spirit. What is supposed to be one of the proofs to the world today of God's spirit working in our world? What is supposed to be one of the evidences that we give to Lafayette? What is supposed to be one of the evidences that we give to Lafayette and to America of the power of the gospel to save and to change hearts? It is supposed to be our unity as people of different ethnicities, of different cultures and backgrounds, who grew up in different places and who have had all kinds of different experiences. But despite all those different things, And despite even all the differences that we still have today, I'm not saying they're all wiped away, but it's saying despite all those things that we are brought together and that God's spirit dwells in us as his new temple and that in the beauty of a reconciliation that the world cannot achieve on its own, we display the glory of God. Reconciliation does not need to be achieved, but it needs to be embraced. Think of it this way. Think of a married couple. A married couple who uh, 
maybe they've been married a few years and some kids come along and, you know, life gets away from them and they start to grow apart from one another. <laughs> kind of the old typical story, right? You have a married couple who, or maybe they had some fights or some conflicts or whatever else. So you have a married couple who is alienated from one another. Maybe they just, they grew cold and apathetic or there are some sins between one another. But you have this married couple who is, who is alienated from one another. What do they need? Do they need to get married again? They have already been brought together in a covenant. Do they need to uh, re-sign another covenant? No, what they need to do is embrace the covenant that they are already in. What they need to do is embrace and return back into receive that gift that God had already given them in, in their marriage and in the covenant they made to one, to, to one another. They don't need to go get married again. They don't need to accomplish something. They just need to embrace what God had already given them as a couple. One of the most beautiful moments in modern TV history in the past couple of decades was this moment where you saw how in the last season or two of The Office, Jim and Pam had started to grow alienated from one another. They began to, they were, they started to grow separated from one another. There was coldness, there was apathy, there was some hurt between one another. Jim is off chasing his career and he's starting to, you know, neglect his responsibilities as a husband and as a father. He, he's starting to, uh, for the sake of his own ambition, kind of leave his family behind us, causing these hurts, it's causing division. And he finally wakes up. And he realizes what he needs to do is not put on some grand gesture. Not, they don't need, him and Pam don't need a vacation or a, or a special date night together. They just need to re-embrace the covenant. And so, in, like I said, in one of the most beautiful scenes in modern TV history, he runs to Pam and he just he, he wraps her up. And at first she doesn't quite return it, right? But he wraps her up. And what is he thinking about? They, they give you a flashback to the wedding day whenever they're exchanging their vows. He's holding her, and he's thinking about those vows that they made. He's not building something new. He's re-embracing that covenant, that promise, that gift, until she as well embraces him in return. This is what I mean by today in Redeemer, in the kingdom of God in Lafayette, and in our nation, this is what I mean whenever I say we need an embrace coming together in the blessing of the gospel and the covenant of a Christ is done to tear down the walls and to bring reconciliation. And so it is upon this foundation that we must unflinchingly pursue justice and reconciliation. When we started the series, we started with Jesus' calling to go and declare his lordship. And a part of declaring his lordship, therefore, is declaring the work of reconciliation that he has accomplished calling men and women, calling, calling political leaders and, and business leaders and educational leaders and, and calling everyone in our society to repent and obey Christ. And one of those things being obeying Christ in reconciliation and embracing what he has done. So as I finish, I'm not arguing, like I said before, that it is a bad thing to gain insights from helpful resources. I want to emphasize helpful there. There's a lot that's not. I'm not saying that it is bad to be well-read or well-educated. You guys know me. You know that, that that is not what I think. In fact, I think it's a good thing 
where we can gain some helpful insights and new and a better understanding of different perspectives from sociology and from history and from so on. But whenever we begin to see the problems in our world or, or, or whenever we begin to approach a problem and we say, if you really want to get it, if you really want to understand racial reconciliation, then you need scripture plus this resource or that book or whatever else. If you really want to achieve racial reconciliation, if you really want the other side to hear you, then you got to do your homework. If that's what we're saying, well, then to that I say the Bible is enough. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would work in our hearts this morning. Lord, work in those hearts that are filled with hurt. Lord, work in those who have been, who have genuinely been, been overlooked or have been hurt before because of um, racial superiorities. Lord, work in the hearts of those who maybe feel some guilt over past attitudes, actions, or words. Lord, would you draw near to us in your spirit this morning to heal wounds, to ease, and, and, and uh, wash away guilt and shame? Would you draw near to us to bring us close to you and to bring us into this radical message that calls us all to repentance and that calls us all to obedience to Christ as our Lord. The blood of Christ, which is the only power to change the hearts of men and women. The blood of Christ, which is the only power that can tear down dividing walls of hostility between groups. The only power that can bring about reconciliation, not just between God and man, but also the only power that can bring about rest, reconciliation between different groups of people. Lord, would you work in us in such a way, bring your spirit close to tear down these walls so that we might uh, experience healing, so we might experience a a beautiful unifying that the seems that the world seems to be uh, that seems to be so elusive to the world and the solutions and the wisdom of the world because they are not working on the solution that's in Christ. Would you bring that to Redeemer and just let it be a blessing among us, Father, to be able to embrace one another, regardless of our differences and regardless of where we come from, Lord, laying down all those superficial or artificial or arbitrary things that we place so much importance in to embrace what you say is important, which is that we are one new man in Christ. Bring that here, Lord. Just, just let us experience it. And then let us be like that beautiful shining temple that through the reconciliation and the unity that we experience, let it be a display of light and of beauty and of glory to a world which needs to submit and worship you. So Lord, we pray that we might experience this unity and this reconciliation and this wonder of the gospel as we worship you. We pray this all 
in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, our Savior, and our reconciler. Amen.